This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, 888-900-3393 if you would like to uh, chat. And of course, if you missed uh, last night, when the Blaze Radio played my uh, night syndicated nighttime show uh, with Premier Networks from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., you can download it at AmericanOutRadio.com slash podcast. Again, that's AmericanOutRadio.com slash podcast. Please check out that show as well as this one. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of time for us. A lot of time for us to hang out these days. All right. The uh, order of the, well, I was going to say the order of the day, but it's really the order of the week, the executive order of the week is coming down uh, from the Trump White House. And I believe this morning there's some movement on it already based on what we're seeing reported. And here's what we're being told so far, that there's going to be a, quote, big immigration launch um, and that this is going to implement DHS, uh, DHS memos, policy memos, going to put them into motion, uh, including... Hiring 10,000 additional immigrations and customs enforcement officers and 5,000 new hires at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, according to Fox News here. So there's going to be more enforcement uh, enforcement personnel. You start with that. But this is where, which, oh, and also the beginning of the wall may happen uh, somewhat soon. I'm not clear on when that is. Um so we've got General Kelly, who runs the Department of Homeland Security. Should be noted when you look at the three most prominent administration uh, officials right now, who are former military, with McMaster as the newly designated National Security Advisor, uh, General Mattis as the Secretary of Defense, and General Kelly is at the head of the Department of Homeland Security. You have top-flight, highly respected military personnel in those key posts that doesn't seem to me to get nearly enough uh, coverage from the media and that's certainly not part of the narrative or we keep hearing about a Trump administration in disarray well, last week 
the disarray was because Flynn's gone. Now we see they fixed that. So there were a few days in which the president didn't have a national security advisor. And now he has put someone in place who I, I can't weigh the merits of the two candidates. I don't know enough about Flynn and McMaster to say which one is better than the other as a military mind or as a uh, somebody who's been on the battlefield. But I can say that it's certainly less of a political liability for the administration having McMaster in that role instead of Flynn. And so in that respect, in that regard, you'd have to call it a victory uh, or, or, or maybe not a victory, but an improvement. So what was a huge weakness, what was a blood-in-the-water moment, as everybody was saying. And I, I can appreciate that, especially when you're doing live radio. You try to come up with creative and worthwhile ways to say things, but you're also speaking extemporaneously. And so the danger of cliches when you're doing hours of radio at a time is even more than when you are on a deadline to get a written piece out there. It's very easy to find yourself on the wrong side of the uh, cliche the cliche wall. Speaking of walls, uh, there's supposed to be a start to the border wall coming up soon. But the place where you will see the real fight, and this is where you're going to have a lot of uh, problems with sanctuary cities like California, I mean, like uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, is that the Trump administration is tightening deportation and detention rules. This is from the Wall Street Journal which will mean that almost anyone who's in the U.S. illegally is subject to removal. And uh, that's where you're going to see, I think, a real, a real tonal and, and also policy change coming out from the administration. Now, the way that this is depicted in the media, of course, immediately you're going to see a focus on uh, children, DACA, Dreamers, that's all you're going to hear about, as though the 11, let's call it maybe closer to 12, and I still believe who really knows the full number. I mean, I'm not saying it's 50 million. I'm not trying to say that it's vastly bigger than it is estimated, but I would be willing to bet that we keep hearing, you know, 11 million. Well, is it 11.1 million, 11.9 million? I mean, <laughs> how, how accurate is this 11 million number that it has managed to stay at a constant despite all of the illegal crossings happening at the border, despite a half a million visa overstays last year, we're told that the number is still uh, 11 million illegal immigrants in this country because there's outflow as well. Okay. But here we are now with the administration taking the... Uh, if, if you believe the way that this is reported on, or if you were to just read it without applying your own critical thinking skills, you, you would have to come away with the thought that this is a that this is a scandal that this is an outrage that the president of the United States would advocate for the enforcement of existing federal law i think that really bears repeating the president of the united states and the department of homeland security are going to push for law enforcement to act on the text, the statutory text of federal law governing immigration is going to be treated like it is a horrific crime against humanity by most of the media in this country. And they're going to be as dishonest on this issue going forward as you've seen them on pretty much anything. Because there has been a 
an all in uh, an all across the board decision by much most of the media, certainly the powerful sectors of the media, that they will indeed find uh, a way to justify a policy that is always somehow we don't take in enough immigrants and we're too harsh on illegal immigrants. We bring in a million people a year, as I've repeated to you many times in the past, in the recent past especially. We are more favorable towards immigrants and particularly more favorable towards immigrants without respect to their background and skills and what they bring to the table in this country than in any other developed country you can find or think of. Major country. I, I don't know what the, you know, the immigration policies of uh, Denmark are these days, but we are a country of 300 plus million. How we do things has a much greater impact on what's going on in the rest of the world. And, but if you look at other countries and how they enforce their own immigration laws and what they privilege in the immigration process, what we do here is say, oh, well, you have family, you can sponsor the rest of your family, and they go to the front of the line. Which means that individuals who come from countries where the whole family and a very large family and the extended family would love to come here are able to do so. So when you bring in, for example, 50,000 uh, uh, refugees from wherever they may come from, once they get permanent status, and now, and I, I, I will have to look at this specifically if refugees are exempted from this, but I know it's true of other immigrants, it becomes much easier for them to legally bring in the rest of their families. That's definitely true of, I mean, through chain migration of most immigrants. I believe it's also true of refugees. But even if it weren't true, all they have to do is fly, uh, get a plane ticket, say they're visiting that relative, come here, and stay. Overstay their visa because interior enforcement, enforcement of immigration laws in the U.S. interior is considered heinous, heartless, and wrong. That's how it is treated. I I always want to ask this question whenever I'm whenever the Democrats start with the well, are you really going to deport 11 million people? What are you going to do with Dreamers? I turn and ask them who doesn't. I want to ask them. And I never get this chance because I don't get to have a real debate with Democrats, especially on TV, because they're afraid of me. Uh, but who who doesn't get to stay? If we were to internalize. Everything that the Democrat media says about immigrants and immigration and all the rest of it, if we were to do all of that, who would get to stay? Or who would not get to stay? If we are a nation of immigrants, if immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do, if immigrant crime is lower than native-born crime, by the way, all of these things are either non-sequiturs, untrue, or misleading. If all of that were true, though, who would, who would we not allow to stay? Who are the members of the media comfortable holding up a hand and saying, sorry, you don't get to stay here? And let's understand what that means. It means that men with guns will at some point show up, women too, but will at some point show up and say, you got to go, you're coming with us, and you're leaving this country. That's what it means. That's what immigration enforcement actually means. And the response to illegal immigration can't just be paying a fine because then you're just putting a price ticket on American uh, on American status, if not citizenship, at least permanent residency. It can't be lengthy prison sentences. One, that, that doesn't seem fair. And two, it's not fair. And two, 
uh, we don't want to be housing the millions of people who want to come here who want to stay here illegally in our prison system I mean that's not that's not right and it's not smart it's not feasible uh, for long periods of time I know people say buck well they're detained yeah I know and you can there are immigration there are immigration crimes where people do serve periods of time <laughs> I whenever someone starts to say well we don't enforce these laws so we shouldn't pretend like we're going to enforce them I, I always I also want to ask where does the lawlessness stop? You can look it up if you if you were to just go on any of your website browsers and you look up uh, marriage fraud, you will see that in this country still to this day, despite everything that's happened to marriages and institution and the changes and no fault divorce and quickie marriages and everything else. The federal government will, in some cases, depends on how sympathetic the defendants are and all the rest of it, will prosecute people for marriage fraud, which is usually a ruse for someone to get permanent residency in the United States. That's why people engage in marriage fraud. But it's, I believe, punishable by up to five years in federal prison. And they still they still will prosecute people over that. So they will bring people into a room and they'll say, what side of the bed do you sleep on? What does your wife have for breakfast every morning? And when you can't answer those questions and you don't know, they will send you to federal prison. Who is the victim in that crime? I, I would have to say, if I were sitting around in a prison cell because of a marriage fraud, I would be pretty darn annoyed, especially considering that there are 11 million illegal immigrants in the country who just, they didn't even go through the the trouble of trying to get some legal arrangement to stay by engaging in a fraud marriage. They just stay. And if you lock one of them up, you're heartless, you're cruel, it's terrible. And And when people bring children into this, I have friends who have worked at the uh, courthouses here in New York City, at federal court here in New York City. Uh, I know people who have spent, not just, of course, our friend Andy McCarthy who comes on and others, but uh, others that are, will remain unnamed because they are conservatives in their politics and in their private lives, but not publicly. And I've heard them talk about what it's like when someone is prosecuted for securities fraud. Family's ruined. They have taken property that they are not entitled to. It's illegal and they've run a fraud of some kind, they've scammed people. No one sets up a petition and says, well, that house in, I was going to say in Greenwich, but that makes it seem like everyone who engages in securities fraud is rich. In fact, the very rich tend to get away from prison time and securities fraud unless there's a uh, political profit for the prosecutor. It's usually the lower level guys, the smaller fish that really serve time, who can't pay the huge marquee fines. If you can pay $300 million, you can stay out of prison. You know, if you can pay $3 million, you're probably going to prison in the securities fraud side of things. Uh, but no one sits around and crying for the, the children and the wives who they lose all their property. Everything's gone because of what was what was a violation of law. So if if American citizenship is a valuable commodity, and I think we're all clear that it is, why is stealing it something that should be done with impunity or stealing the benefits of it? I know people say, well, they're not really citizens. And why is it that if I were to, and increasingly I think, you know, if, if Elizabeth Warren is in charge, I know I sound like one of these Hollywood, uh, Hollywood liberals who's always threatening to leave the country but never will, but if Elizabeth Warren were to win the next presidential election, what would happen if I showed up in Monaco and just demanded citizenship? Monaco is beautiful. There's basically no crime. So right there on the French Riviera, have a great time. I couldn't just demand citizenship. They would have some people show up with guns and put my butt on a plane and send me back to where I came from. 
I wouldn't just get to demand. No, no, you, you make me a citizen. I couldn't show up in Mexico. I couldn't show up in Canada and demand to be made a citizen, demand the right to stay. So where does it end? I, I just That's the question that I would like the Democrats, because when they gear up for this thing, the opposition to the enforcement of immigration laws that is going to be mounted soon here, the opposition to this notion of what's on the books is what we actually, that's different than prioritization. Right. I mean, prioritization in law enforcement is, OK, look, we got you on this, but it's a low, you know, it's a low level offense as these offenses go and don't do this again. And we'll defer prosecution or we'll let this go. We'll push this aside. Prioritization is not. Yeah, we've decided that we're just not going to enforce that law anymore. I mean, imagine for imagine for a moment if, if that was the Republican stance on what people should do on, under the Trump administration about their taxes. Everyone just, you know what, the law doesn't say you have to pay a flat tax of 10%, but I'm going to instruct the IRS that that's, and look, I think that would be great, but the reality is that that would cause its own problems too. Kind of wish the Trump administration would get its uh, get its butt in gear a little bit with some of this stuff. I, I don't understand what the slowdowns are. I know I'm drifting off the immigration topic here, but I just want to set the table on immigration because what's coming is going to be a knockdown, drag out, all out fight and you're going to hear a lot of lies and you're going to hear a lot of pandering and all kinds of nonsense on this. Must fo- you must focus on immigration is supposed to benefit the people who are already in this country. Immigration is not a welfare program for the whole world. It's not just supposed to be America is the soup kitchen and the uh you know the, the jobs program for every foreign every foreign government that wants to allow its people to come here or that has people that want to come here that the law has to mean something or else no law really has much meaning anymore and we could extend that to any number of federal statutes that i think are complete crap so you you have to keep that in mind and also if democrats want to play the game of are you are you really going to send kids home i want to play the game of who do you think should be sent home other than violent felons who shouldn't be in this country in the first place and even there democrats get a little a little angry, a little irritated when you start to round them up. This is going to be quite a fight, my friends. All right, 888-900-3393, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. 
You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team sponsor this hour, silencershop.com. The best place to go for a silencer, period, is silencershop.com. They have a fantastic selection. They know exactly how to get you through the process of a silencer. When it comes to doing the paperwork, getting it all done right, silencershop.com is the place, the place, number one for you to go. So uh, check it out. You can read testimonials on the website. You can see all the latest that they have in the market, in the silencer market, and uh, you can check it all out there. So silencershop.com. Again, silencershop.com. Uh, do, do you guys want to talk about the Milo thing today? I don't know. I, I've, the, the good news for me is I've got so much time on radio with you that I never feel rushed anymore. And so during the day now, I feel like I... It's like we're, we're beginning the conversation, and then I'm going to continue it with you all later, uh, which is why I want you to... I'm starting to think of this five hours as almost... It's like one continuous show. It's two hours from 12 to 2 Eastern, and then three hours from 6 to 9 Eastern. All of it on the Blaze Radio, by the way. And uh, But I, I just want to know if you think that this is really something we, we should discuss, that I should spend time on. I have... Uh, I have my views on it. I, I don't think anything that I would say on the Milo situation would surprise any of you. Um, I, it, this is one of these things where I almost feel like it, it, it's, it's so obvious that you shouldn't, that there are certain things that you sh- can't say or you shouldn't advocate for that for me to take our time to say, well, I mean, clearly what he said is, of course, what he said is, is crosses the line. Um, and there's also a part of me that absent the very extreme circumstances where even I will say that really crosses the line, I always feel like somebody deserves a a second chance if they are, are sincere and they apologize. And but this was particularly look, it was really bad. And I have to tell you, you know, there's sometimes where as somebody in conservative media, it's it's easy to start to get a little bit annoyed with uh, what feels like a performance art of provocation instead of uh, honest and uh, forthright, heavy list, heavy lifting intellectually to win the argument as this country continues to face some of these issues. I know that's a divergence. Anyway, if you want to talk about it, let me know. Team, we'll be back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, we're very pleased to be joined now by Rich Lowry. He is the editor of National Review, and he's a syndicated columnist as well as a Fox News contributor. Rich, thank you so much for making some time today. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with the uh, the dust-up from over the weekend. I, I know you posted something at nationalreview.com, uh, the corner a section of it, on this issue of Trump referring to some media outlets as uh, the ed- the enemy of the people. I-, I agree with your assertion, by the way. I don't think he understands the enemy of the people as a phrase, what some of the undertones there are. I think he just means right. that they're the opposition. But I also think that people make a big deal out of everything that Trump says, so it's kind of tough to parse this all out. What w- what- what is your, your uh, not-so-hot, because it's been a couple of days, but your take on this one? 
Well, uh, I, I, I don't think it's the end of the First Amendment in America, as some of our friends in the, the press say. I wouldn't use the word enemy even about my enemy. You know, ISIS is our enemy, not not Nancy Pelosi or the editor of the New York Times. But Agreed there's no on doubt that, the yeah. press is the, uh, the opposition party. And uh, uh, really, I, I think last August, when the New York Times used the word lie in a front-page headline about Trump, that was a sign that the press... Uh, mainstream press was going totally into opposition. There was a brief, brief moment of self-reflection after the election when the press was as, as stunned as some of the rest of us were and uh, uh, thought, well, maybe we should be uh, a little more open. Maybe we should uh, question some of our assumptions. And that period lasted all of about five days. And then ever, ever since then, every two or three days, there's some crisis that supposedly heralds an, uh, uh, you know, uh, an end of the American regime. And uh, we've just been in this cycle constantly. And there have been concerning things. There have been mistakes. But there's also been a lot of hysteria uh, on the part of the, of the, the media. Um, I, I hope he also doesn't decide to call the media a you know, public enemy number one. There's some yeah. phrases that would be best, it would be best if he stayed uh, if he stayed away from, um, especially without understanding the historical context. But I, I can also see how, uh, for a lot of people that 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 just watch this as outsiders who aren't obsessed with politics, who don't work in this as as you do and I do uh, day in and day out, they just see that there's a, a refreshing honesty to Trump being willing to at least say publicly that I mean you go down the line at CNN where I used to work as a commentator and there are, every major every major news anchor there doesn't like Trump and is a Democrat you look right. at the Sunday talk shows I, I cannot think of a Sunday show that is not on Fox where there is any uh, any reasonable expectation that any of those hosts would have voted Republican and certainly not uh, certainly would not have voted for Trump so isn't it okay to point out that this perception is there? I mean, why why do people seem to think that it's so much better for freedom and democracy and liberty and the First Amendment to have a completely compliant and uh, press that covers for the previous administration as opposed to a what we have now? I mean, why was it okay yeah. with Obama but not okay that now they're against him? Yeah, you can argue it was more a threat to uh, free, free expression or a system to have a, a press in a slobbering love affair with the president of the United States, as we saw at least when Obama initially entered office, uh, rather than the president of the United States kind of firing back. And I, and I think you know, my reaction to a lot of this stuff, this tweet, that the press conference that preceded the, the tweet that kind of ever, had everyone agog, is, you know, 35% hardcore Trump supporters. They're like, right on, thank God, you know, he's, he's preaching the truth. And then you have, you know, some persuadable middle that ultimately Trump needs to, to hold and build on to win re-election that probably just doesn't care that much and is waiting to see the, the results. And I, and I think that ultimately would be more decisive than any of this. You know, events, you know, there'll be unexpected crises. How does the administration handle them? And the economy. And if the economy gets better and if there's job growth, and most importantly, wage growth, it doesn't matter what Trump tweets. He, he's going to be in a good position. We're speaking to Rich Lauer, who's the editor of National Review, syndicated columnist and Fox News contributor. Uh, Rich, before I move on to the policy and agenda items that are, are being unveiled, rolled out this week in the Trump White House, uh, one more thing. National Review, I, I have many of your writers and have had many of your writers both as, as colleagues on different panels in the past on TV and, and also have had them on radio. You guys are smart. Even people don't agree with you think that National Review has good writers and smart people. And I'm assuming that that also means that you come across journalists from the left 
who are a little more willing to be honest with you than perhaps they will publicly about what they really think about all this Trump stuff. And I know you write for Politico, so you're, you're in contact. And I'm not asking you for any names. I'm just wondering, yeah. though, the journalists on the left that you that you interact with, who at least have a respect for you and, and the Nash Review staff intellectually, if they disagree with you, will they admit that they hate Trump or do they really think they're being fair? I think, you know, among my friends in the mainstream press, there's at least one, and I'll, and I'll say maybe two, just to have the margin of error, um, uh, one or two of them who aren't appalled by Trump and don't think this whole thing is fated to be a disaster. Those are just built-in assumptions. And, you know, a lot of these, these folks, um, you, you know, you refer to them being on the left. A lot of them aren't really on the left, or at least they don't identify that way, but they just swim in this ocean. And they're not aware of their biases or the fact that their assumptions might be uh, fallacious or erroneous. So just, just this, this assumption about Trump, it colors everything. So it's why uh, whenever there's any story, what was, I'm trying to think of, of a couple that were blown out of proportion, you know, the gag, the gag order on, on new agencies, which turns out every, every new administration has a so-called gag order, which means you, you just don't want the, the bureaucracy to be tweeting stuff out and communicating things is not in keeping with the new policy. So this is a routine thing, but, you know, Reuters or someone reports it, and immediately every reporter in the universe blows it into some horrific uh, descent of fascism in America, and then, you know, three hours later you get to the truth and that, that it was overblown. And, and the reason well, they do that is because they, they assume the absolute worst. Right, so you're saying it's not that they... Are, are hiding their political proclivities and, and are, are actively trying to subvert the Trump administration by being what they think is dishonest. They just think this is reality. <laughs> they actually Correct. believe yeah. now, that, these, right, the that these are things. So, so they have no sense of the perspective here. Uh, but doesn't that also then tie into why you get people, whether it's, uh, I mean, I keep going back to CNN because I know the folks over there, but in other places as well, the fake news comment really stings them. And I think it's it's like the old uh, schoolyard issue of when someone says something that is true and, and hurts, it hurts a lot more than when they say something that's clearly not true. I think right. that's why fake news gets them so riled up, because they know they are running stories that aren't true or that are exaggerated or they're hyperventilating about Trump. And they're doing this repeatedly. Yeah. And then but there, there never seems to be any accountability. Um, so, you know, they they, they get the election wrong, you know, for, for a good solid year. They, they run with these uh, mistaken or distorted or, or overhyped stories, and there's never a sense of, you know, I'm sorry, or, or anyone has to, to go. You know, this, this kind of blob just stays there. And th- this is where I, I don't think, you know, some, some of Trump enthusiasts think he's going to destroy the media. Well, there's just no destroying these people. <laughs> you know, they, these big institutions, they're not going away. And it's, it's gratifying and in, in many instances justified for Trump to punch back. But ultimately, his revenge over the media will be governing successfully and getting reelected. Um, he's not going to destroy I, I also, them with tweets or press conferences. Right. Absolutely. And the notion that he's destroying the First Amendment, not, and I think there is, a, there is a, a cautionary note should be struck for some people on the right, myself included, with always saying, well, Obama did this, therefore with Trump, it's not as bad. Or, But there are some places where I think that's not only fair, it's, it's really warranted. And when you had the previous administration arguing in Citizens United that the government has a right to ban certain books within a certain 
time frame of an election. Right. That was the actual, as you know, that was the that, that was the the government lawyers were contending that. Never mind what Citizens United itself would have done, and on top of that, they, all the other fairness doctrine and things the left pushes. The, yeah, the threat and, to for the, the First leak, Amendment clearly comes from the left more than the right. Yeah, and the I'm leak sorry? prosecutions and the leak prosecutions and surveilling oh, yeah. James Rosen. You know, <laughs> imagine if the Trump administration were were doing that to anyone right now. You know, the lid would blow off the place. And that my basic rule is that words are words. There, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, I, I there are things Trump says that I disagree with, but um, but just saying that the media is wrong or or you know there's fake news or you know a, a judicial decision is wrong is not a threat to our system. I'm I'm somebody who has said many times that I know Nash Review, you guys published Never Trump. You've been very upfront about your hesitation about Trump or your criticisms of Trump in the past. Uh, You've been very upfront about that. And now you're calling balls and strikes as they come through. And I I read the site and I read a lot of your writers all the time. Uh, But I have to say, you know, looking at the way that this is playing out right now, it seems to me uh, like for some in the media, there's nothing Trump can do that's ever going to be right. And they're even willing to say as the ultimate conclusion of all this Russia investigation stuff has to be in their minds, that Trump is a traitor. And I, I, I do think that that's also something that's a little, that's beyond, certainly at this stage, what you were seeing from anybody with a following, anyone in the mainstream about the Obama administration. There was just that story that was run recently about how Trump would betray national security secrets to Russia, so the intel community was holding stuff back. Right. Uh, never mind the fact that I was in the IC and I think this is nonsense. They were insinuating that Trump was a traitor. That's what that was. Right, right. Well, it, again, it's just kind of leaping to the worst possible conclusion. Now, on the Russia stuff, I think there's a, a wide spectrum. It, it could turn out to be a, an enormous, even thermonuclear scandal, you know, if, say, Paul Manafort was directly coordinating the hacks, you know, with the Russians, or it could turn out to be a complete fizzle. But we need to know more facts. But everyone goes to the, or at least a lot of the press, just goes to the very worst scenario. So we saw the comparisons last uh, last week to Iran Contra or even to Watergate, which brought down. Oh, always Watergate, Rich. Always, always go Watergate, right? That's the first option. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing to watch this stuff play out. Oh no, uh, Rich, I want to ask you about the uh, the executive order that's coming out on immigration and what on, on a policy side. People have been criticized. Well, two things, real quick, and then I'm gonna let you get back to running National Review. Um, one, do you think that the Congress is be, the Republican-led Congress is being too slow? And two, what are your expectations for what Trump's rolling out on immigration this week? I do think the Republican Congress is is being slow. I, I do think we've forgotten what it's like to legislate because basically it hasn't happened in six years. It's always messy. I think both with Obamacare repeal and replace and tax reform, even if we get both, which I don't think is guaranteed, but probably more likely than not. It'll seem at various times that they're they're dead or foundering. Um, but I, I do think this is an area where uh, Congress needs presidential leadership, and both on the Obamacare replace and on tax reform, pretty soon here, Trump's going to have to pronounce on what exactly he wants and push Congress in that direction. Otherwise, you know, th- th- these folks o- oftentimes can't, you know, uh, run a two-car funeral because it's especially in in the Senate because there are just so many. Um, differing voices and, and rival power centers. So I, I'm not alarmed, a little concerned about that. On immigration, you know, we have the, the guidance from DHS now on what the, the enhanced enforcement will look like, and it's just going to be a tightening up across the board where the administration is actually going to enforce the law, which is shocking to a lot of people because we haven't done it in a very long time. And then it seems like the executive order on the travel will mostly be cosmetic uh, 
changes. You know, making making it clear, crystal clear doesn't apply to green card holders. Not doing the, the suspension of Syrian uh, migrants uh, or refugees, and then trying to relitigate it on on the, the slightly firmer grounds. Uh, a, a quick a quick prediction. I think that even though they will address the concerns that have been stated, people forget about the Brinkman decision in in uh, Virginia where she, uh, that judge just said, this is about bigotry and anti-Muslim bias. I mean, that's been, that came after the Ninth Circuit, but that lays under the surface. I think even if they do what you're saying they're going to do, and I agree with you, there still may be a judge that decides to be a hero for the left and just, and over the, but we'll have to, we'll have to hit that again another time. Uh, we're, we're running to a hard break. Rich Lowry is editor of Nash Review, syndicated columnist and commentator for Fox News. Go to NashReview.com, everybody. I do. You should too. Rich, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You really... If you watch uh, some of these CNN panels, you see they'll they'll bring on columnists who realize that it's good for their brand to just be nasty, just be nasty to conservatives. It's not even a question of whether they disagree on substance. Just be mean to them, and people will tweet at you that you're a genius. Here's New York, the New York Times is Charles Blow and Kaylee McEnany having an exchange on live TV. Play it. I do think some of my left-wing commentators who I disagree with ideologically the, 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 the do that. The fact that you touched me before you said that is wrong. Don't <laughs> oh, do that. Don't well, do that. No, 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 ma'am. Don't do, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't touch okay. me and then say you're launched into your sinister motivations I didn't, diatribe. Okay. That's not going to happen tonight, ma'am. I, I didn't realize right? there's a one-inch barrier there, where I'm not allowed to, there, to, there, to get close no, to there, Charles there, Now I know, so I'll scoot over this way a bit. You can scoot until you fall off that ledge. What I'm telling you is don't touch all right, all right. But Charles, this is the problem. This yeah. is the problem. And it was what you just said to me is a lot like what Maxine Waters said today when she said, look, don't ask to meet with me, President Trump. I don't even want to meet with you. We're all Americans. Maybe you don't feel that way. We have one president. We should all want him to succeed. And we should all be friends at the end of the day and hug it you out. And if you don't you want about, to do that, you, about, you don't you have about, to do that. You're about to turn this from a civil conversation into me telling. Because we're all Americans. No, 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 ma'am. Because we're all you're, Americans. Because now you, that's a very personal attack to say that I don't believe that I'm an American. I, maybe I don't believe that I'm an American. Don't do that. You said See, I'm no, not no. even allowed to touch you. No, that is not. just like what Matt said. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's very sad. All right. No, you're not. Go ahead. So, he seems like a nice, polite gentleman. He's first of all, he's telling a lady he hopes she, she, her chair falls off the ledge and she like smacks her head on the ground. And, and then he gets all, all upset uh, when she says that we're all Americans. <laughs> oh, look at the New York Times, man. These places. You know, I don't know. One day, I, there's like a part of me that's like, if I ever just start, you know, start Buck's Grilled Cheese Shop somewhere and I can just have a Twitter account and say whatever the heck I want. Oh, man. The stuff that I would say to some of these people if I didn't have to worry about getting fired. <sighs> good times. Good times, everybody. Hour two coming up. Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hub. We've got David Banson with us now. He is CIO, CIO of the Banson Group of Hightower Advisors and a National Review Institute trustee. David, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me. All right, Trump, the markets, let's talk. I remember the night of the election when I think Dow Futures plummeted when it was clear that Hillary was going to lose. People, when I mean people, I mean famed economists and uh, and and Democrat uh, Democrat pundits with backgrounds in economics uh, were were writing about how see the market has spoken. Hillary Clinton's loss is terrible. Well, now the market is better than it's been in in decades for this period of time for a new president. But I know you say some of this, yeah, good, but also let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. What is true about the market under Trump thus far? Well, and I, and, and I think that a lot of this could very well prove to be well-founded. I think that you want to be careful if you're the president about benchmarking your presidency to the up-and-down movements of the stock market. There's a little more unpredictability. There's a little more embedded volatility in the market than maybe those in the political sphere might be used to. So I would be prudent there. But I think that the market is doing exactly what you might expect it to do, given the policy uh, paradigm that we're being told is coming, a repeal and replace of Obamacare, a deregulation across the energy sector, the financial sector, and then most importantly, corporate tax reform, some degree of foreign profits being repatriated back onshore to be able to be put to use in a more business investment friendly climate. And then, of course, a lower cost of uh, compliance by a simplified tax structure. Now, David, what does that look like? I mean, when people talk about a lower corporate tax rate, everyone that I know uh, who follows markets or that I talk to in my media travels, who's a, a market guy, either works on, works on Wall Street in some capacity in the financial services sector, says, look, lower, the corporate tax rate's just too high. Lowering it is a good thing, and this would be a smart move for the Trump administration. I think to a lot of people who hear that, they say, well, why do I care? Can you explain to anyone listening who isn't running a corporation or isn't involved in a cor- in what they would think of as a corporation, perhaps small business or uh, you know local business, why does the corporate tax rate going down help them? How can that help most of America and not just those who seem to already have access to the corridors of power? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's very important. I'm going to answer it for two types of people. One are the shareholders of companies, and two is everybody else. Because there is, we have to be really clear about this, there is only one entity that pays corporate taxes, and it is not the corporation. It is the employees of the corporation. It is the people not hired by the corporation because there's less money in the kitty to hire them. It is the capital expenditures or growth of the business that doesn't happen because there's less money. The, the, the customers of a company that have higher prices because the cost of that taxation liability is passed on to them. 
ultimately corporate taxes are absorbed by all the wrong people. So to the extent that you tax less of something, you get more of it. And we think that is extremely bullish for the overall economy, not just the shareholders, but for the stakeholders in the economy, the customers, the, the laborers, etc., that have that skin in the game. And as as to how the market is doing so far, um, I, you know, Trump himself was saying a while ago that the market is that we're in a bubble right now. Uh, what what do you make of that? I mean, obviously, no, that was not what he says today, but that's what he was saying at what was it when the Dow was at uh, eighteen thousand, and now it's at, uh, or what would that be at, at what the Dow is now? I mean, aren't we in a bigger bubble if we were in a bubble then? Well, I mean, if you if you were taking him literally on the math of what he said, if you're in a bubble at 18,000 and now you're 12.5% higher, then I guess you're in a 12.5% bigger bubble, right? Um, ultimately, I think you can kind of excuse his little comment at the first debate, which is where he said that, because I think it was more political. I think that a lot of things get said in a campaign that probably are not... Uh, worth interpreting literally, and that might be even more true with this particular president. But um, no, I think that there, that there is truth to it in this sense. We don't know exactly how valuations will hold up if and when the Federal Reserve begins a more aggressive form of normalizing monetary policy. Let me just say it a little more succinctly. If they start raising rates more than expected, there are some parts of the investment universe that will suffer from that and that have benefited from the kind of free ride of a really accommodative Fed. So I don't believe we're in bubble territory. I think certain parts of the market look very frothy, that their valuations are on the higher end of where you probably would want to be. There's other things that I think look really opportunistic. I think I've said this several times. President Trump has the potential to be the energy president. The deregulation of what he is doing in enabling oil and gas to actually start moving around the country again, create pipelines that will transport in a cleaner manner oil and natural gas so that we can export product, that is a revolutionary idea. And I believe he's going to get a lot of it done. So there's an investable activity there around Trump's energy policy. Do I think some of the other sectors of the market might look a little expensive? Probably so. But overall, I think the point of the article I wrote with National Review was to say, hey, the president probably should be focusing more on GDP growth, the overall economy, than just using the Dow Jones as a barometer. So you mentioned energy. What are the other ways that the uh, that that the the Trump administration can and and I, this goes with the proviso of you know every administration gets more credit for a good economy that it deserves and more blame for a bad economy than it deserves probably right but absolutely uh, given that they he does have some levers he can use those levers to some effect what are the things that he can do other than deregulating the energy side of things that might affect people listening right now right I mean if you're listening right now and you whether you're a, a school teacher. A plumber, or a lawyer, or a doctor—you know—what can Trump do that might make things better that will affect you in a positive way, in an economic, uh, economically positive way? The lowest hanging fruit for the president is to deregulate the burden that is put on businesses, and he's already taken action in that regard. There's a lot more work that can be done, 
but from the plumber to the teacher to the consumer, the everyday shopper, and, and anyone else in between in terms of their role within the economy. There's too much regulation that's become too much of a burden, both in a fiscal cost and, and in a kind of harder to quantify way as to the, as to what it does to the sort of animal spirits. When you have greater optimism, there's less headwinds that you're facing because there's less of a regulatory burden. It enables businesses to start building, it's investing in their future, hiring more people, more innovation, all of these things we can get out of our own way. Now, if you want me to get into the weeds a little more, if I were him, would I be doing significant things in our pharmaceutical and healthcare business to make the FDA process for new drug approval much, much easier? Yes, I would. That's not only a great uh, maneuver from an investment standpoint and the profitability of those companies, but far more importantly, it will save lives. So I think that well, is, you have is the biggest hurdle to that on just the on the liability side that there are so many that you have to go through what phase one, two and three clinical trials because of concerns about lawsuits once a, you know, if a drug is approved and you don't go through all of this or you don't have these procedures in place, it's easier to sue because I know there have been massive lawsuits in the past about drugs that have been approved. So why does the process have to be so onerous? I, I think and correct me if this is wrong, but I think I remember reading that to take a drug that is a brand new drug, not an iteration of a previously established drug, not a new delivery mechanism, you know, a foam instead of a pill or whatever, uh, to take a drug from concept to market costs a billion dollars, which sounds like <clears throat> insane to me, but that's what I'm told it costs. Well, and that's, it's a true number from a, a median standpoint. There are a lot of drugs that cost more than that to get to market. There are obviously a lot of drugs that, that cost less, but as an average, that's, there's a lot of empirical support for that number you cite. So you've, you've done good homework there, but I'll tell you, the biggest reason is not just the litigation threat. This comes down to kind of our shared philosophy of government. It's necessarily more bureaucratic when you have invited such a large behemoth of government into the process. We absolutely need regulatory approval around um, safe drugs coming to market, but to the extent that we have ample opportunities to make this far more free, far less bureaucratic and burdensome and allow for greater risk-taking and patient can, uh, say with their doctor as to what they're willing to try and not try and things of that nature. When you get into the highly sensitive areas of people's own health care, um, this is extremely low-hanging fruit, and I think it would have a tremendous impact on a lot of people in the society. Is healthcare really fixable, by the way? I mean, I know that this is people talk about repeal and replace and Obamacare is bad. And I, I've spoken to many experts and, and done as much homework as I can without, uh, you know, losing it over reading so much of the, of the same material about why Obamacare is not what it was promised to be and why it's failing. OK, that's all true. The problem as I see it with healthcare, and this I just have learned as a healthcare consumer um, is that. People want to believe that someone else is going to ultimately the problem with their healthcare system is that people have been told that healthcare is a right. Healthcare is a very broad term, and people want to believe that someone else is really going to pay for their healthcare. And healthcare is very expensive. Maybe there are ways you can bring down costs, but I don't know how we get around that. I, I think this is what Republicans are faced with now, and it's just not 
you know, it's the same sort of uh, some of the same dynamics you see with how Trump isn't touching Medicare. Trump isn't touching Social Security. I was I remember being told years ago Medicare was unsustainable at the current rate. Well, nobody wants to say that. I think nobody, politically speaking, wants to say that health care that somebody else pays for that's great and accessible to all Americans isn't really possible. Is that is that too dark, a too dark a version of this or is that really what no one wants to say? I think in a sense you're asking two different questions because I think that there is a um, sort of broader philosophical question. Can this be done? Is it fixable? Is it even theoretically uh, doable to make improvements in the way we deliver healthcare services to our society? And, and I think that the other question that goes there with is, is it politically feasible? And those are two different questions. The, the, I am asking both one, of those. You are right. Those are two different questions. I really want you to focus in on the first one, which I think you're going to do. So go ahead. The first one, the answer is unequivocally, yes, it is doable. Unequivocally. First of all, based on our belief system about freedom and about choice and about the benefits of competition in society, we don't have any ability to say that it's unfixable when we've had a system that has become so bureaucratized and that competition has been so stifled. We have every opportunity in our society to look around and see the benefits of competition, see the benefits of choice, see the benefits of open markets. For us to then say, yeah, but that doesn't work with health care is a huge leap of statist faith I'm not willing to take. I believe it can and will work in health care. Um, and, and to the answer your question, theoretically, it's out there for the taking. Now, it's sloppy. It's messy. We've done such bad things to get to this point that unwinding it would take a lot of work. And frankly, where I kind of disagree with some of my Republican friends sometimes, I think we do have to be sensitive to that. I don't think we have the right to just all of a sudden say, we're just going to kind of undo it all, blow it up, and let the chips fall where they may. We need to be very delicate from a policymaking standpoint and how we get there, but ultimately greater freedom, greater choice. I have absolutely no doubt it could be totally revolutionary in the quality of health care that we are delivering in our society and the economic impact that would have. I mean, but so you, you can foresee a future where if Republicans were to do things correctly on health care, the average American would be able to be covered would have a reasonably wide network of doctors to see and could pay a $20 or $30 copay for each visit. And that that more or less is it. I mean, that's because I, my that's the expectation here for most people when they think of health care coverage. They think that they're going to be able to go see a doctor, pay 20 bucks, and that's going to be it. Or maybe it's 30 bucks or whatever, something like that. I, I yeah, just so, I wonder how that happens, given that you know, the moment you don't have health care, which I've gone through every time you go see a doctor, it's like 800 bucks. <laughs> You're like, OK, how did that happen? Well, and I think, I think that um, the different needs different patients have and where the insurance system goes and so forth, there's a lot of variables around this. Do I think that we're getting to a point where there will be free or almost free health care? No. But see, this is exactly the whole damage that Obamacare did to this conversation. It confused two things that just cannot be confused, and I certainly don't want our listeners right now to be confused. We're talking about the difference between health care and paying for health care. There's never been a moment in which all of a sudden health care was going to be free or, or health care was going 
to uh, cost much less. The cost of health care has done nothing but go higher. That's the question we have to be answering. Why is that? So to the extent that we provide more subsidy or more benefit or something that makes the customer feel like he's paying less, that doesn't mean the health care costs less. It means it was a transfer of payments. The cost of health care and the health care itself are two different things. But ultimately, I believe that with greater choice, greater competition, unless this entire philosophy of free markets has been totally in error, then we will see two things that happen. Prices come down and quality go up. That's the way. David, it we'd work. love to have you back to continue this and other discussions about the economy and markets. We're literally running running into the hard break here. David Banson yep. is a CIO of the Banson Group of High Tower Advisors. He's a Nash Review Institute trustee. You can read his latest on NashReview.com. David, thank you so much for making the time. We'll have you on the night show soon. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right, team, we got to hit a break. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Get ready for this. You're going to see a lot of stories, uh, teary-eyed stories about what Trump's immigration policies uh, mean for illegal immigrants. You didn't see this despite Obama deporting a whole bunch of people under the Obama administration. Here's what it was like on MSNBC. Play the clip, please. The child at anti-Trump protests to MSNBC clip. Jose, tell me, why why were you leading the march just now? Uh, because I hate Trump, and uh, so and so do my parents and other friends. And uh, he uh, deported my father and my uncle uh, because they were illegal immigrants. Lots of children. Remember, anytime Democrats say it's about the children, you should be suspicious. You're going to see a whole bunch of that. You're going to see a lot of uh, cases of children children separated from their parents to try to put a maximum emotional impact into the issue. You will not see lots of televised interviews with the families of people who have been killed, let's say, in drunk driving uh, accidents where an illegal immigrant without a license, doesn't know how to drive, or is not legally driving, um, is behind the wheel of a car and kills somebody. You won't, you won't see lots of, of interviews in the mainstream press with the families of those killed by illegal immigrants in, in accidents. You won't see them with the families of those killed by illegal immigrant uh, gang members or illegal immigrants who just in, engage in, in violent crime. That, and you could do that, couldn't you? Wouldn't that be a valid part of this discussion as well? If, if we're going to be shown the human costs of enforcing immigration law, isn't, doesn't it stand to reason that the press is honest that they would also show the human cost in very uh, real emotional terms for those who uh, are affected negatively by illegal immigration in this country? Doesn't the human toll argument work both ways? Oh, no, of course not, because, you know, the press and they're liberal and they just want everyone to come here, man, because like America, a nation of immigrants. It's, it's amazing. I also love so many of the legal immigrants I know uh, and speak to, including a couple that live in my, in my building here in New York. They're so pro-Trump. They love Trump. And I just think it's so funny because 
You know, you always hear that Trump is so anti-immigrant. And meanwhile, I know plenty of legal immigrants who think that Trump is the greatest. And they want illegal immigration to stop. we got more coming. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. We're joined now by Noni Darwish. She is a human rights activist who was raised as a devout Muslim in Gaza and Cairo before immigrating to the United States, where she converted to Christianity. Her controversial upcoming book, Wholly Different, Why I Chose Biblical Values Over Islamic Values, argues that now is the time we proudly stand up and proclaim what we know to be true. Islamic values are bad, period. Oh, my. Noni Darwish, thank you for calling in. Hi, Buck. My pleasure. Uh, okay, so you uh, grew up uh, in Gaza and Cairo. You were a devout Muslim, and now you're writing a book about choosing biblical values over Islamic values. And you say that, as I see here in the blurb about your book, that Islamic values are bad, period. Do tell. Well, what, uh, you know, we have to compare the two uh, value systems. And uh, I'm not speaking about... Muslim people, because people, there's good and bad in everybody. I'm just uh, comparing side-by-side biblical values with Islamic values. And when I started doing that, when I first uh, came to America, and I I, uh, saw churches and synagogues, how they treat, uh, how they teach people their value system. For instance, we're all sinners. Uh, this is a very common uh, statement uh, said in every church. In Islam, they are all sinners. Islam focuses on changing the other, not on changing oneself. And that is a major difference between the two religions. And, what are, I mean, when you talk about Islamic values, and, and by the way, Noni, I've, I've gotten drawn into this conversation generally at CNN just with respect to uh, whether jihadism is the cause of terrorism, uh, of jihadist terrorism in Europe, or European lack of uh, programs to assimilate, or European rejection of the other, and this is uh, so. I've I've been involved in the back and forth from that side, and as a former counterterrorism practitioner at the CIA, I have very particular v- views on this. But one of the things that I always would run up against, and and you see this elsewhere, and Reza Aslan, and there are others that use this as the as the as a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card in this debate all the time, is what are Islamic values? Are the, are the values of a, of a Muslim in Morocco the same as one in Indonesia and the same as one in Somalia and Saudi Arabia? How do you address that? Because I'm sure people must come at you with that line of argument because I hear it on TV all the time. Well, absolutely. There, I'm not speaking about people. And that's uh, one way to confuse everybody is when, you, when they tell you, oh, are you talking about you know, a person in Morocco is different from Pakistan, from Cairo, from this or that. And that's why we don't want to judge Islamic values by people. We have to judge Islamic values but what, by what it's preached in their holy books, in their uh, Sharia books, in, in books about what is good and bad. 
and this is in every religion, we cannot judge Christianity by the behavior of Christians because Christians are not the same. So same thing with, with Islam. Um, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of people are saying that, oh, it's a, West, you know, your point was very good about being, uh, is, it, is it the West's fault? That, uh, but no, it's not, because when I first came to America, uh, I, I still considered myself Muslim, so I went to mosques here in America, and I was shocked when I was told, don't assimilate. So, and then I researched it, and I found out in Islamic law, uh, there are many laws against assimilating in, into foreign and novelty value system that is not Islamic. So the reason there is no assimilation is not because the West is not allowing, allowing Muslims to assimilate, but uh, it's because Islam forbids assimilation. I'll give you an example. There is a Muslim imam in Canada by the name of Mazin uh, Adham, and he said this following statement. Islam and democracy are contradictory and absolutely incompatible. Uh, he continues saying, called, he called on Canadian Muslims to stick to the Islamic law reject secularism, work together to spread Islam, reestablish the Islamic state, which is the caliphate, and implement Sharia law. So the, the purpose is not to assimilate. The British um, mayor of London, where, his name is Khan, he visited the United States recently, a few months ago, uh, last year, and he said uh, openly in his speech to the American Muslims and that they don't need to assimilate in, Islam, in American culture. Actually, he was encouraging them. And no, Noni, what, what I'm sure what, what the people that would uh, be critical of the thesis of your book and also that go on TV and, and always play this game of any discussion of Islamic values that is critical or any discussion of the role between uh, terrorism in the modern world and at least uh, subsets of Islam or some portion of the Muslim world, uh, they always say, well, well, that's just you're just giving anecdotal evidence or you're just this is just one individual. It's not representative of the one point seven billion. Right? They always repeat that number as uh, once again, it, the, the argument becomes very slippery. And I know that this is what they always come up with. So I, I wonder how do you you're telling me individual stories and I appreciate that. And I I, I don't disagree with your thesis that this is something that people don't want to talk about and they aren't honest about what's really going on with Islamic values in the, in the modern world today. But I do know that these are the, always the counter-arguments, so I'm curious to know how you address them. That's why you always have to uh, tell whoever tells you that most Muslims are not like that. It's fine. We're not talking about people. You have to always go back because... The other side, the one that wants to confuse the West, they insist on talking about people. And if you notice, I don't talk, I'm not talking about people. In my whole book, all I'm talking about are values that are inside the books of Islam. Uh, values that are... What are those values, if I may ask? I mean, this is an important point then. So what are the, if it's not about the people, it's about the values. What are the values as you define them and as you describe them? 
Christianity, you know, teaches us to change ourselves. And uh, if you read the Bible, it's all about changing oneself, controlling oneself. Islam is all about controlling others, changing others. It's, uh, uh, we're all sinners in Christianity. In Islam, they are all sinners. Judge the sin and not the sinner, versus judging the sinner, not the sin. Guided by the Holy Spirit, versus manipulated by human terror. Terror was, this is a quote from Muhammad. It's in the books, all over Islamic books, and I'm not talking about people. I have been victorious through terror. That's a quote from Muhammad. And I'm not talking about Muslims. Do you think that my whole family in Egypt are some of the nicest Muslims you'll, uh, you'll ever meet? So I always want to avoid talking about people because uh, you, miss the, you miss the truth. Um, no, I understand. I understand. We understand that point. You've made that point clear. This is about yes. this is about ideology, not about people. But but of course that has an effect on people. So what do we? What should we know about the ideology? Why does this one? Another, another important one. Uh, uh, Jesus died for us to save us. Okay, in Islam we must die for Allah to go to heaven. How do we die for Allah? We have to kill. The enemies of Allah. The word enemies of Allah is all over the Quran. Who are the enemies of Allah? They are Jews, Christians, pagans, uh, whoever is not a Muslim. Some Muslims call the enemies of Allah even other sects of Islam, like Shiites call Sunnis enemies of Allah, and Sunnis call Shiites enemies of Allah. And the people who go to heaven uh, are the ones who die for Allah's sake, to kill his enemies. This is totally different from the biblical values. In, in Christianity, we have to confess our sins. We, uh, the whole Bible is about confessing sin and to be redeemed and to be forgiven. In Islam, there is a whole theory about concealment of sin. Go on Google. You'll find under Islam there are verses in the Quran that, and hadith by Muhammad that encourage Muslims to conceal their sin and not, never make it public. Uh, in Islam, uh, uh, in the Bible, we're at war with the devil, okay? We're not at war with flesh and blood. In the Islam, we are at war with flesh and blood. We are at war with the enemies of Allah. Two, uh, three-thirds of the world, three-fourths of the world, are called enemies of Allah. And the job of a good Muslim is to get rid of them or convert them. In the Bible, truth will set you free. The whole Bible is talking about truth. In Islam, lying and slandering as enemies of Islam is an obligation. It's opposite. A changing oneself versus changing other. Vengeance is mine versus vengeance is prescribed for Muslims. I'm quoting here from the Quran. I'm not talking about people. Uh, Islam, uh, you know, Christianity is a covenant of peace. Islam is a covenant of war. We have to be at war with Dar al-Harb. These are basic, basic values in Islam. 
self-reliance is a value under Christianity. In Islam, well, Noni, I would love to get, I would love to hear a debate, or maybe you can direct us to one of you making this case uh, against. You know, the overwhelming uh, leftist consensus in this country, which is always, of course, that Islam is a religion of peace and the things that I know you address in your book, because I, I would I would love to hear um, that that back and forth. Uh, but unfortunately, today we're, we're, we're at time. Yeah, well, uh, Noni I, Darwish is a has, human rights activist and author of Wholly Different, Why I Chose Biblical Values Over Islamic Values. Well, I'm sorry, Noni, what do you want to say? Uh, no, I, I said uh, my book will, 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 if you read my book, it's all with references from the Quran, from the Hadith, from the Sharia, from the sayings of Muhammad. And it's not about people. And that's why it is, I'm talking about the values as they're being preached. In no, I, I hear you. Yeah, I know. i just just curious to hear the rest of the argument. But unfortunately, we're, we're at time today. Thank you very much, Nodi Darwish, for joining us. I appreciate it. And team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. competition to see of, of existence you know who can exist because if one group not only can they but it's not it's not just that they both can't be the most victimized but that they both can't exist as a category if the other exists matt walsh available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio the irs is the most feared agency in the world you've heard ads from other companies offering to help taxpayers only if they owe over ten thousand dollars here at Platinum Tax Defenders, we're A-plus rated with the Better Business Bureau, and we're proud to be one of the only tax firms in the country who understands that people who owe less than $10,000 need help just as badly. The IRS doesn't care how much money you owe. They'll still garnish your wages and even seize your assets. So whether you owe just a few thousand dollars or hundreds of thousands, call now for your free tax consultation. If you qualify, we may even be able to reduce your tax debt down to a small fraction of what you owe. So don't wait until the IRS seizes your property and garnishes your wages. Call 800-579-4967 and get your tax problem resolved once and for all. That number again is 800-579-4967. 800-579-4967. And now, Blaze Radio hosts react to not-so-positive listener feedback. Hey, it's Chris Salcedo. I was perusing Twitter the other day. Some guy named Ron says he doesn't care for the way I refer to the biased media as the Brian Williams press. I thought the vast majority of us preferred that our news anchors didn't lie to us. I don't know. Maybe he's into news and information SNL. Hey, all you left-wing nuts. If you want to hear some of my other nicknames for your side, check out the Chris Salcedo Show. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now Google Play Music. Paid non-attorney spokesperson Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with principal office in Houston, Texas is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto and Prodexa users. If you or a loved one has taken the blood-thinning drugs Zarelto or Prodexa and suffered an injury or even died, you could be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Call 800-553-4751 now. Zarelto and Prodexa have been linked to internal bleeding, strokes, and pulmonary embolisms. If you or a loved one has taken these blood 
blood-thinning drugs and have been hospitalized for internal bleeding, you could be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Don't be a silent victim. Time is limited to file your claim. Call now for free information and a free consultation. Lines are open 24-7. Call 800-553-4751. That's 800-553-4751. 800-553-4751. You could be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Call 800-553-4751 now. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand, call Citizen Incorporated, 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Not a loan company. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM19, Oregon DM80031. Services are primarily educational in nature. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. It also bears pointing out that the president identified the entities that I often identify as the basket of bias. That is why I call them the liberal talk show. It's not news. It's not the press. They're not journalists. When they're doing what I'm doing, they're opinion folks. ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post descended into opinion, masquerading as news. It's no longer news. The Chris Salcedo Show, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. For much of the media team, when in doubt, just just go, if you're a Democrat, strategist, or whatever, just go on TV and call Trump a racist. They don't care what else you have to say. Just go on national television and call the president a racist, and you'll, you'll have plenty of invitations to go on TV from most of, almost all of the networks out there. This is how this segment was set up with a couple of CNN commentators. One's Harlan Hill. I've had on the show before. I actually know Angela Rye as well. I, on a person-to-person level, I think she's uh, perfectly pleasant. and She can be quite charming when she wants to be. Uh, but uh, this is how the segment went. Play it. More on our breaking news now. President Trump has just condemned the wave of anti-Semitic crimes across the country for the first time. I want you to take a look at the president just a short time ago. The anti-Semitic threats targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. Those comments from President Trump at the National Museum of African American History here in Washington. And joining me to discuss is CNN political commentator Angela Rye. She is the former executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus. And Harlan Hill, he is a political consultant and a supporter of Donald Trump's. Harlan, I want to ask you about this because I know that you're you're hearing some of the criticism of Donald Trump. uh, And I imagine people who support him like you may say, okay, he gets criticized for not saying this. And then he's criticized for not saying it soon enough but uh, okay, wait, press i'm going pause. to ask you that question that's I, I love how we skip over that by the way wait press pause for a second she she's the, this is the anchor saying okay so i i get that trump was criticized for not speaking out against these anti-semitic attacks and anti-semitic opera okay and then he speaks out against it and then the media says he didn't do it soon enough okay so you know we're all clear right that it doesn't matter what he says they just want to say he's an anti-semite he's a bigot they just want to say it they don't care but he'll keep playing the clip Seven bomb scares since the beginning of January, uh, a Jewish cemetery desecrated yesterday. Why do you think that President Trump spoke out now, and why do you think it did take him so long to do so? Well, look, he did the right thing. He's spoken very clearly on this in the past. He said he's acknowledged that. Why did I was asking Harlan here? I like Harlan. 
Wait, press press pause. Harlan's a nice guy, smart guy. Uh, why did it take him so long to do so? Why, who says it's so long? His son is, or I mean, his son-in-law, I should say, is Orthodox Jewish. His daughter is a convert to Judaism, or one of his daughters, a convert to Judaism. But they're they're doing a whole segment here that's basically, you know, is Trump an anti-Semite? And then they bring on a commentator, we won't have time to get to it right now, who says, oh, no, he's a bigot for sure. She just calls him a bigot, straight up. You got to I'll play this more tonight, team. So join me uh, six to nine Eastern. Uh, you, if you want to listen, all you have to do is go to AmericanOutRadio.com and you can click live listen that way. That's probably the easiest way unless you have a local uh, terrestrial affiliate in your area. It's on six to nine Eastern. And if you miss it and want to listen to it on playback, AmericanOutRadio.com slash podcast. Uh, so join me tonight, team. Always want the Freedom Hut team by my side. Until then, shield tie. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.